that. Yeah. All right, okay. nice. <coughs> An improvised boom mic to go with the improvised horror. <laughs> Welcome to the Quarantine Spook Show. I'm Kyle Carezzi. As Ellis mentioned, I'm going to be telling several uh, improvised horror stories. And also, if you want to walk across and go to the bathroom or something, I celebrate it, personally. And also, if you have any horror title submissions uh, for the hat, I'll just leave it open as I'm going through the show. So just chill out, hang out, throw a goats ready to party. In the meantime, I got some spooks. <laughs> Alright, this first story is called The Dumb Supper with My Mother. dreading it all week. I've actually been dreading it for several weeks. You see, whenever I planned uh, suppers with my mother, we usually plan it a week in advance. But I always know the weeks before, she's going to ask me for supper. And I'm just like, oh, mom, I don't know. And she's just like, come on, I never see you. And I was just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But she invited me for dinner during the week when I happen to have nothing to do, because it's a pandemic. The schedule's pretty wide open, you know. So I'm just like, alright, I'll come over for dinner. And she said, yes, I think you're really going to be super into what I have prepared. And I'm just like, oh, probably like broccoli or something, I don't know. So I, I come over. Uh, the way we usually prepare dinner is I usually just like bring like a salad in a little case or something and she cooks like some sort of meat dish. That's all our din dinners ever are, just salad and meat, you know. So I arrive and she answers the door. And she's just like, oh Bert, how are you? And I'm just like, uh, fine mom, fine. She's just like, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I miss you so much. And I'm just like, yeah, okay, you know. 
So she's sitting in the uh, living room watching TV, and then she starts to prepare the meat thing. Then I'm sitting in the living room watching TV. She doesn't have any streaming services, uh, it's just cable, you know. I don't know if you've seen cable lately, but it's uh, hit, a, hit a dark turn. Not just with all the Zoom uh, broadcast content, but also just like, you know, they're, I don't know, it's like, cable's a dark place. Just like a lot of Price is Right reruns, and it's just like, this aired like three years ago. So I'm watching The Price is Right, and I'm just like, alright, I haven't seen this one. Where's the pachinko thing gonna go? I really get into the program because I, I don't know. Just, uh, just like the thing about my mom is just like, she just says a lot of dark shit, you know? I remember one time at a Thanksgiving five years ago, she's just like, uh, have you ever wondered how the turkeys feel? And I'm just like, mom, I'm eating, come on. That was the last time I saw her. So I was at this dinner, and she uh, had a meat thing prepared, but uh, I didn't know what it was going to be, you know? We're eating together, and it's, uh, it's a pot roast that she made. It's uh, pretty good. We usually don't eat my salad before her meat. We just eat them at the same time salad meats and all that. She has like a candle lit, which is nice. But I look at her sink and she hasn't done the ditches in a long time. It's really uh, grimy, a lot of plate towers, and I'm just like, oh, mom. And she's just like, well, I don't have anyone over, you know, you never call. And I'm just like, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> so anyway, we're eating. Pot roast tastes a little bit funny, and I'm just like, okay, it's a weird pot roast. Start to feel pains in my stomach as I eat. Don't really know why. But then it gets to the point where we start to prepare for dessert. She just has a whole frozen cheesecake, and she puts it in the microwave nukes it for a couple seconds or whatever, you know. It still, like, tastes like icy in the middle, but it's still fine cheesecake, you know. No complaints, I guess. Desperate times? I don't know. Unprecedented. Yeah. Anyway. So I take one bite of the frozen cheesecake, and I... Stomach starts to feel a little bit funny. Even more so, I could barely eat the cheesecake. You know. Start to feel very sickly. My mom, you know, seeing my torment and my suffering, she asks, Oh, how are you enjoying the cheesecake? Clearly seeing that I'm not eating it, and I'm just like, Uh, Mom, I'm just feeling really sick. And she's just like, Oh, oh no. Well, here, do you want to take some medicine or something? And I'm just like, No, Mom, I'm fine, you know. So eventually I just pushed a slice of cheesecake away. We go back into the living room, uh and watch the Price is Right marathon. I'm starting to feel even queasier now. I look at my hand and my skin's starting to fade and hue a little bit. I'm starting to feel shaky, really cold but sweating at the same time. 
And all I can say is just like, oh, mom, I really don't feel good. And she's just like, oh, no, well, maybe you should have, uh, you know, try to eat some food. You barely ate uh, dinner or cheesecake or anything. And I was just like, no, no, I just had the, the pot roast. Mom, what did you make that pot roast, pot roast with? And she was just like, oh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I was just like, Mom, that's not a good answer. <laughs> and she's just like, well, you know, whenever I uh, eat meat or something, you know, I always think about the animals, you know. I grew up on a farm and had to slaughter my own meat, and when I did, you know, I'd have a moment with the animal, just being like, thank you for the meal you're bestowing, uh, and your place in the universe, my place in mine. So I bring demise to the animal, as I reckon with mine. But every time I bring it up with you, you're just like, ah, oh, it's just meat, fuck animals, or whatever. And I'm just like, yeah, mom, mom, but you make it sound really dark, really morbid. And then she says, well, you know, ultimately it is morbid. It's just, tis the way of things sometimes, you know? It's important to think about what everyone eats and what everyone puts in their body. So I say, mom, what, what's in the pot roast? And she's just like, oh, now you're curious? I start to freak out a little bit, so I stand up and then I just like fall over. And I'm breathing, panting, sweating. <laughs> and she's just like, well, you know, I, like I said, I do appreciate meat. And I always like to find it from a local source when I can. But you know, the supermarkets have been finicky about their meat supply. But I thought, one place I could go, I can go to the morgue. And I was just like, Mom, no. And she was just like, oh, yeah, I just went to the morgue. Uh, just They had some bodies there, uh, some rotting flesh and all that. I even did, let it not refrigerate for a couple days just for you. And I was just like, oh, no, I didn't even notice. And she's just like, yeah, I seasoned it really well, made my own sauce, disguised the flavor and the smell. I'm a very good cook, Bert. You should really come over more. And I'm just like, Mom, you should... Uh, I, gotta, I gotta go to the hospital. We can talk about, uh, you know, our strange relationship, I guess. But, like, uh and She's just like, uh I mean, I could take you to the hospital, but... You know, I gotta... I gotta prepare for the meals that I have in store for the next week. And I was just like, oh, you're shitting me. No. And I was just like, yeah... Come on, let's follow me. So she picks me up. I try to struggle, and she just kind of rolls with it. And then she brings me down to the basement where she's been storing her meats. A lot of pigs, cows, chickens, and people. None of it's refrigerated. It's all just rotting. So she just lays me down with all the rotting meat, and... Now that I think about it, I didn't even see her really eat the pot roast. So she starts to go upstairs. And I'm just sitting there with the rotting meat. I don't know how much time I have left. I think my end is near. So as she's going up the stairs, and before she closes the door, she just says, So remember, Bert, if you ever need me, just give me a call. So that's spook, that's spook number one. <laughs> if anyone, like, it needs, you know, 
If that's if, if it ever, ever gets a bit too much, just let me know, and I can pull it back a little bit. I just wanted to start off strong, you know. This next story is called Dr. Freeze's Lament. Dr. Jeremy Freeze had a doctorate. He was tra trained to be a doctor. He went to medical school, medical school and everything. But he found he didn't it wasn't right for him to be a doctor. What he ended up doing is he got into business for himself uh, to sell freezers. And since his name was uh, Jeremy Freeze, he thought, hey, you know what, it'll just be called Dr. Freeze's Freezers, you know? Like, when he goes to drop them off at wholesale, they'll be like, oh shit, Dr. Freeze, and he would just be like, ah, yeah. But then he wanted to expand his freeze reach. He had a real entrepreneurial spirit about him. So what he started to do was uh, sell little icy pops and like slushies and whatnot. All he had to do was just like have frozen ice and add some uh, food coloring and sugar to it. And eventually, uh, his brand of Slurpees were being sold in convenience stores all around the country. Perhaps you remember them. Just walking into a 7-Eleven or something and see uh, Dr. Freeze's slushies or something of the sort. Cherry and blue flavored. What ended up happening was a lot of children had the image of Dr. Freeze in their head. It got to the point where he became a cultural fixture. Just like, oh yeah, did you have Dr. Freeze when you were a kid? And people would just be like, oh yeah, totally, you know. A real stellar nostalgia trip. Eventually, people began to know his face, uh, being Dr. Freeze and all. Kids ha who have grown older would approach him and be like, Oh shit, Dr. Freeze! And he'll just be like, Oh yeah, hi. Even to this day, it's like the, uh, 
Like the graphic designer who designed the solo jazz cup to cow, you know, just like, oh shit, you did a, a cultural imprint in the 90s, and he'll be like, yeah, hi, you know. It's not a reputation he expected. When he was younger, he wanted to be a medical doctor, and then uh, pivoted to entrepreneurship and freezers. And then he decided to do just like a tasty uh, frozen treat, and people were super into it. If you would ask him today, he would, just, he would just be like, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just sugar, ice, you know, not a big mystery about it. But still, people were into it. Eventually, people would write articles about him and whatnot, make speculations about his personal life, because I guess these writers didn't have anything better to write about than to write about this random 90s uh, fixture. People started to begin uh, to spin their own myths about it. There's actually one rumor about this woman who uh, fed her son pot roast and then left him in the basement. And they credited Dr. Freeze to that because he was rumored to take away her freezers and it drove her mad. He denounced these rumors, of course. So one day, uh, later in his life, modern day, he's going through old newspaper articles about himself, about his company, uh, Business Insider, and some industry news and all that. He had stacks of newspapers uh, about his past, about the history of his company. You know, back in the day he used to take those things seriously, but now he just wanted to be at peace. Because to him, he was just like, why is everyone so obsessed with these freezy pop things that I made? Or was credited with making, you know? It was just some uh, flavor engineer who just made the serum that was put on the ice and that was the end of it. He virtually had nothing to do with it. But still, since he was Dr. Freeze, people would be like, uh, Dr. Freeze. And be like, yeah, fine. started to get a little bit more extreme. People would camp outside outside his house. Started off as people wanting autographs or something. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then people would come over, you know, just wanting to drink with him and whatnot. And he was just like, well, I guess I have an afternoon free. I guess I can. But then it just escalated from there. Swarms of people every week would just want to hang out with Dr. Freeze. They'd bring vintage uh, Slurpee cups for him to sign. And sometimes he would. But then it got to the point where he became a recluse. Stowing himself away from the public. Never to be seen again. He despised cameras. If he was hanging out with someone who had their smartphone out, he would try to, like steer the other way so the camera on that phone wouldn't be directed at him at all. But as he became more reclusive, more people wanted him see to see him. At that point it became a mystery. What's the deal with Dr. Freeze? What is he up to all day? Really he's just getting older and just wants peace. But no, the public wouldn't believe that. They were just like, we have to know about Dr. Freeze now. 
people wrote think pieces about it, did little YouTube shows about it, and like Dr. Freeze is just like, all I did was make a little Slurpee drink. My company did at least. I don't know how this happened. Eventually it escalated to the point where people would host festivals outside of his house. It was called Freeze Fest, where people would have like Slurpee parties and stuff do like ice sculptures and all that even bring their own wholesale freezers that were inspired by Dr. Freeze's design it was like a freezer conference but like super hardcore with a twinge of like 90s slurpy nostalgia and he was just like fuck this is escalated you know and then every every festival which would end up being like once a month he would just be like, alright, yeah, we gotta... They would say that Dr. Freeze would make an appearance by the end of the festival. He's just like, I never agreed to that. I don't know why everyone's just swarming and whatnot. It eventually became a rumor as the scale of uh, Daft Punk performing at the trash fence. Like, it supposedly it happened every year, but they never show up. But maybe one of these years they'll do it ironically or whatever. But still... Dr. Freeze was really losing it. So while the height of a Dr. Freeze festival was happening outside of his pad, he was flipping through his books, just doing some reading, and he was rereading King Lear. And at the beginning of the first act, I mean, the, the beginning of the second act, there's this one sequence when uh, the Earl of Kent is giving a super hardcore, like, insult string to the character Oswald. And it inspired him and made him think, yeah, this is what I'm going to have to do. So every at every uh, Freeze Fest, there'd be a stage set up for Dr. Freeze to show up. Most people were skeptical, like, yeah, he's not going to show up. But there were some diehard Freeze heads who were, like, super hopeful about it. But then one month, it happened. Dr. Freeze appeared in front of the public the same scale of suspense as the cartoonist of Cabin and Hobbs making an appearance. Bill Watterson, that's his name. But yeah, Dr. Freeze appeared. He saw the whole crowd of Freeze heads. Freezers. Slurpees. He, as he watched, he was just like, wow, I've really made an impact on people. I've improved the quality of Freezers. My Slurpees are hardcore. And at least on a superficial level, I am loved. It really touched Dr. Freeze in a way he didn't expect. But then he thought, no, I gotta do what I gotta do. I just want peace. So he did what he came out to do. He just did a whole string of insults to everyone. I don't know if anyone read the beginning of the second act of King Lear, which is like a lot of crazy shit, you know. And it stunned all the audience. God. And then Dr. Freeze just looked around, he was just like, yeah. And then he just swapped off and went back to his house. And then sitting in his house in his bedroom, feeling exhausted, he just said, uh, finally, that had to have been enough, right? But then lo and behold, he just hears a loud cheer outside of his house. 
the crowd was super fucking into it. He didn't expect it. He was just like, oh, they made he made an appearance, and he was just like did like this beautiful like poetic thing, and they cheered and clapped, and they got a taste of Doctor Freeze, and that only spiraled his rep reputation even more. Now he was considered hardcore, as well as all the other accolades that he built, spent decades building, not even intentionally building. And Dr. Freeze just didn't know what to do from there. No one's seen him since that day. Not his family or loved ones or uh, the managers of his estate. He's gone missing and no one's seen him. It's likely that he uh, died and uh, had his funeral service uh, hidden, so no one would really know about it. But some hope, hope, some hopefuls think that he threw himself in one of his freezers, never to be seen again. Chronicles of Dr. Freeze may live on if you uh, pick up the right fanzines or something. <laughs> Alright. This next story is called The Day My Mask Got a Tear. What was that? Is that some Dr. Free shit in there? <laughs> Dr. Free shit as in... In your, in your jar. jar. In your jar. Um... <laughs> oh my god, Kyle's Dr. Freeze! How <laughs> <laughs> did I miss that? <laughs> it's melted Dr. Freeze! Mm -hmm. Oh my god! <laughs> Maybe there's a little Dr. Freeze in us all. <laughs> 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 you know, I don't want to brag, but all of my COVID masks fucking kick ass. I got an old Velvet Underground uh, Andy Warhol banana mask. Got a Nirvana Nevermind mask. Um, a Shakespeare mask. Uh, I can't remember all my masks right now, but they're all hardcore, I assure you. You know, it's hard to say how long the pandemic will last, but I want to do it like neckties, like one per day. I have 365 masks, and they're all fucking hardcore. I wear one each day. You know what, even if I get a vaccine, I'll just still keep wearing those masks, you know? I'll just go somewhere that's like, you know, 
where it's that's kind of filthy and it's good for my lungs, you know, I'll just say, yeah, it's, you know, I do it because for the air quality, I do it for my lungs and all that. But really, I'll just be wanna be wanting to show off my hardcore masks. In fact, some people in work would confront me about it. You know, at first they were just like, oh, hey, uh, Stan, nice mask. And I'd be like, ah, thanks. You know, you almost didn't know my name was Stan. And they were like, no, 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 I, I knew. And, they were, and I was just like, okay. Some people would say, oh, Stan, cool mask. And be like, ha, yeah. But then one person at work was just like, oh, so Stan, do you wear a mask like a different one every day? And I'd be all like, ah, totally. And then I just went, huh. And I was just like, huh, what, is, what does that mean? Doesn't he think my masks, masks are cool? <clears throat> now, I didn't guide this trajectory, but eventually I got a reputation that uh, I was like the obsessive mask guy, you know, that I had a mask for every day of the year. And like some people came up to me, it's just like, this pandemic might not even last a year. And I'll be like, huh, you'll just wait and, wait and see. I had 700 masks, you know. I don't even want to wear the same mask twice, you know. So I want to be that hardcore about my mask wearing. So, uh, then there's one morning when, uh, I just had a day off, so I was just kind of like, you know, chill out, maybe hang out at the park, you know, socially distanced, all that jazz. And I had the perfect mask that I was gonna wear. It was gonna be like an old school Astro Boy mask. It's really gonna kick ass. Totally vintage or whatever. But then when I pulled it out, it had a tear. And I was just like, tear, oh no. I was really heartbroken. I was so excited to wear this mask. So I was just like, okay, whatever, I'll pick a different mask, you know, um, I got a cool Pikachu mask I can wear, and then I got the Pikachu mask, and it also had a tear, and I was just like, what the fuck, what's going on? I'm going through my whole box of masks, and everyone had, like, tears, some big, some small, some looked like they were cut with scissors, other ones looked like they were, like, cut with a knife or something, I'm flipping through all of them, I'm just like, I don't, I don't have any fucking masks to wear. I do. So I'm just like, oh, I know. I wear, I wear like a bandana or something. And then I get my bandana, and it's just like that. Also torn up to shreds. I have a few other bandanas. I look through them, and they're all like ripped apart, you know, cut up. And I was just like, fuck. What the fuck am I gonna do? I don't know if I can leave the house today if I don't wear a mask. This fucking sucks. So I was trying to think about it. And the only thing I could do was just like, I just took a, just took like my shirt and just like put it like above, around my nose and mouth and just kind of like kept it there, shoulders hunched and just went on my day like that. I was just like looking around, seeing people with their cool masks, you know, even like some stellar surgical masks. I was just like, fuck, that's, that's so cool. I felt heartbroken, you know, 
I really invested in having cool masks for this pandemic, but just like my whole hobby and way of being just felt slaughtered, and I was just like, fuck, this is awful. So I'm sitting at the park, uh, alone and sad. I'm seeing a guy play fetch with his dog, and I'm just like, oh, it looks like fun. Even the dog has a bandana, and I'm just like, well, la-di-da, that's cool. So I'm sitting on a bench, on the edge of it, and then someone sits next, not next to me, but like on the other edge of the bench, and they have a wicked cool mask, like one of the coolest masks I've ever seen, like, in public. It was just like a, like a Mad Mask, uh, Mad Max Fury Road mask, like the Abortion Joe kind of face, and like they had that as a mask, and I was just like, fuck, that's so cool. And then the guy turns to me, and he's just like, oh, hey, you're Stan, right? And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, th that's me. And he's just like, oh, so you're the you're the mask guy. And I'm just like, well, I mean, I, is that a reputation I have? And he's just like, yeah, yeah, everyone in the neighborhood knows you. You know, you're always the guy who wears really interesting masks, like even when you're just going for walks or grocery shopping or something. And it made me feel good. Just like, all right, so people are into me wearing masks. You know, it's, it's nice. It's cool. So the, uh... Morton Joe looking guy. He was just like, yeah, your your masks are cool. But I don't want to break it to you, but there's only one mask guy in this neighborhood, and that's me. And I'm just like, what? And the Mad Max guy was just like, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, your masks are cool and all. It's a very humble collection, but I have like a thousand masks, and all mine are super cool. I've traveled the world to collect him, and I was just like, well, should you be traveling the world collecting masks during a pandemic? And he's just like, whatever. <laughs> anyway, I am the premier mask collector in this town. Just a little lesson for you. You should wear masks, you know, take precautions. But if you want to wear a cool as fuck mask every day, there's only room for one person to do that. I'm just like freaking out. I don't know what to do. And it occurs to me that this is the guy who went into my house and cut up and destroyed all my masks. I just, I start to lose it. I lose control. And eventually I lower my shirt and I'm just like, hey, fuck you. And then he stands up and backs up. Then I realize what's happening. I'm not wearing a mask. And I go up to him and I'm just like, yeah, I would be wearing a mask now if you didn't destroy them all. Fuck you. So he starts to back up and freak up, freak out. And he starts to like run away and I chase him. He can run faster than me so I don't catch up with him. So eventually, uh, the only thing I can think of is just to restart my mask collection, you know. I start off humbly, not to draw attention. Then I immediately go back to wearing cool masks. And one thing I start doing is... I start wearing, putting patches on my masks. And then I have all these cool masks with all these different patches, all these really cool designs. I eventually get into a habit of start making my homemade masks. And then it's just like, everyone's just like, oh shit, you made that mask? And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, it's cool. And they're just like, oh, can I have one? I'm just like, yeah, totally, I'll sell them to you. And eventually I get this reputation of just like having a hardcore Etsy shop, selling all these masks. 
Eventually I get an order from uh, the guy who wore the Immortan Joe mask in the park. He made several orders. It was, uh, it was a request that he made to have some really cool masks. So I just look at the Etsy page and then I just said, request denied. That was, that was a nice lighthearted one. <laughs> Alright. This final story is called It's, oh no, it's just, uh, it's hard to read. I'm gonna say it out, I don't know who put it in, but I'm just gonna say it out loud, and if no one corrects me, it's, that's gonna be it. Alright. This next story is called Soprano or Her Head. I think Soprano on her head. Soprano on, okay. Soprano on her head. <laughs> It could really be an on or or. It's gonna be soprano. Uh, let's find out how the story unfolds. Multiple choice. Soprano on slash or her head. Oh, bye. Take care. Betsy started opera at, a, at an early age. She sang soprano and managed to maintain that all throughout her adulthood. She can hit those high, high notes like no one else could. Whenever she was in a chorus or in an opera production, she could always hit the highest soprano out there. She did all the hard, rigorous work to do all those opera auditions. She practically nailed everyone. In interviews, uh, people would ask her about uh, the nature of failing because opera is very uh, rigorous and a lot of people learn from failure, you know. Or there's a lot of failure required for success. And then Betsy would just like stare blankly and said, No, I've never failed before. I just always sang soprano and just it was fucking easy. I don't know. This made all the other opera singers scowl, <laughs> for sure. And Betsy wasn't even like loody about it, and she's just like, yeah, I just always, you know, sang soprano, and then I would always get auditions, and now I'm this uh, renowned opera singer. I mean, I think it's cool, I guess. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, she just does opera cal cal casually and is nailing it. Shit. But you know, she did some cool operas, and pretty renowned across the country and Europe and stuff. 
Anyone who knew opera knew her as a performer, for sure. But Betsy's just like, yeah, it's cool, you know. Get to stay at a nice hotel sometimes, meet interesting people, you know. Some cool performances, you know. So then one, uh, she nails one audition for a, uh, a retelling of, uh, Magic Flute. And she nails the, uh, the soprano part. She nails the audition, at least. A lot of people auditioned for it. It was a very high-profile production. But she was just like, she just kind of waltzed in. She slept in that day. She arrived late, you know. She just had, like, a lot of, uh, carbonated drinks and didn't train her voice at all you know didn't have to sing a certain way did all the things you shouldn't do uh to prepare for an audition uh but she just went in and just like killed it nailed it knocked the house down all that jazz all the other opera singers who spent their lives uh sacrificed their childhoods to become superb opera singers couldn't even compare to Betsy just casually doing soprano. So partway into Magic Flute, uh, the director uh, pulls Betsy aside before everyone goes home. And the director is just like, Betsy, how are you feeling? And Betsy's just like, you know, I'm whatever. And he's just like, do you, do you know? she's just like, no, what? And then the director just looks at her in a very grim way and says, well, there's a bounty on your head. And then Betsy's just like, what? And the director says, yeah, there's a bounty on your head. You know, I don't, I don't know why for sure. I, I know that there's a bounty on a soprano's head. I don't have hard evidence about it, but I'm pretty sure it's you. So you might just want to like wash out, maybe have someone like, you know, walk you home and stuff or something, you know, stay safe in that way, um, avoid tall buildings, I don't know, I don't know what kind of bounty it's gonna be, I don't know if, like, it's gonna be, like, a sniper or, like, that ice skating thing with what's-her-name, so, you know, and Betsy's just like, well, I always knew opera was competitive, but shit, really? And the director's just like, yeah, I just have an inside for this stuff, um, <laughs> Betsy's just like it gave her a new lease on life you know she always just like casually strolled through everything she did and just fucking nailed it but now she's like oh wow there's risk and stakes so she tries to think of what to do about this you know she usually, she laid low during that time. She just went to practice and then stayed in, like, various hotels and Airbnbs and stuff so that no one could, like, track her or anything. So then she gets an idea, you know. She thought about, well, I need protection. I need some, f some form of, like, bodyguards or something. You know. So what she came up with, she started to started to read a lot about dictators, specifically Fidel Castro. If anyone knows their history, Fidel Castro is a notoriously difficult person to assassinate. There's been many attempts, no one succeeded, 
So she tried to do a bodyguard situation similar to Fidel Castro, just having a lot of people she knew very well, very close to her at all times. Eventually, she got the reputation of just like, yeah, that's the opera singer with like the bodyguards and stuff. It's like, oh, why is that? No, bounding on her head. Yeah, she would just like stroll in. There would be like several like big like buff dudes in like pinstripe suits. She had like that sweet opera money, so she just kind of spends it all. <laughs> so, <laughs> spend it all on just the bodyguards and like them like dressing really nice as a way of being intimidating by any prospective assassins. If any assassin like came and encountered her and her bodyguards, they'd be just like, shit, not this job. And it worked successfully, you know. So far, there's like no one who, you know, there's been a couple attempts to, you know, I guess, take her out. But the bodyguards, like, you know, ended it swiftly. If it was someone at a distance, they would just like neutralize the threat and then she'd be like, oh, thanks guys. And then she just like raises for everyone and they'd just be like, ah, oh, cool. So it was the night of Magic Flute. The premiere production. She was stoked for it, to hear all that, you know, Mozart stuff. She didn't know Mozart very well for someone in opera. And then the director like went to Betsy again, so Betsy, um, so you're gonna, you know, you're gonna perform tonight. And she's just like, yeah, yeah. And he was just like, yeah, but that will make you uh, vulnerable for that, uh, you know, the bounty on your head. And Betsy's just like, oh, it's no big thing. I got a real kick-ass, like, bodyguard crew, you know. Really probably tops the Secret Service, actually. And then the director's just like, well, all right, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm going to, your understudy's going to come in. Uh, I'm going to cut you from the show. And Betsy's just like, wait, why? And the director said, well, if you're going to be on stage, you're going to be super vulnerable, you know, and like, you know, if even if your bodyguards like do save you from like getting assassinated or uh, whatever, I don't want like that kind of thing to happen in my production. You, you know, you know, I, I don't want to, I fear for the audience and all that. So like, I'm going to, you're too much of a liability. I'm going to have to cut you from the show. And then Betsy said, all right, name one person who was assassinated in a theater. And he was just like, Abe Lincoln. She was just like, shit. Yeah. It's like the, that's a really opportune time. Fuck. Um, so I can't do Magic Flute? And the director's just like, no. So she's heartbroken. It's what she considered her first failure. And, uh, world of opera. Eventually she would court the town, uh, the city in Europe, uh, the country in Europe, America, Europe, and just like audition for more shows. She traveled the world to find new gigs. And even though the bounty on her head was still in place and they couldn't get to her, a lot of directors didn't want to hire her for the show just because it's too much of a liability for someone with a bounty on their head to be on stage and she's just like well that sucks so she starts doing solo work and it's really cool 
you know, doing like solo shows and whatnot. She gets her reputation that way. But as far as group ensembles and opera and whatnot, you know, it just doesn't, you know, doesn't pan out in that way. And then one day she's, you know, she's having dinner at a very nice restaurant. Her career's still intact and whatnot. And she runs into the director of Magic Flute. It's been years after afterwards. And the director's just like, oh, hey, Betsy. And Betsy's just like, oh, hey, what's up? How did Magic Flute go? And he's just like, good, it was a while ago, but good. I've been doing other stuff. What about you? And she's like, oh, you know, other stuff too. And the director said, hey, well, congratulations. And then Betsy's like, what for? And the director said, well, that bounty, you know, it's not on your head anymore. And she's just like, really? And he's just like, yeah, you know, uh, you're not really doing like group ensemble operas and showing everyone else, but showing everyone up by not trying. So yeah, the bounty was lifted on your head. And she was just like, oh, that's really cool. You know, so maybe I can audition one of your operas, you know? And the director said, no, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. And she's just like, well, why not? And then he's just like, Betsy, do you, do you have, do you don't know what's going on? And she's just like, I guess not. You know, the bounty on your head was just a bluff. No one was really going to try to assassinate you or anything. It was the opera singer's plot to just extradite you from the world of opera. And they succeeded because you don't do opera in the same way anymore. You're not, not you're not in the ensembles. You're not doing you're not showing up other opera singers who need work. You know, you're it's dungeon rings and for opera for you. And Betsy's just like Oh fuck. So then eventually she finishes her meal, the director leaves. And then she's just sitting there alone. And she's just like I guess I'll fucking do something else then. I don't know. Wasn't that into opera anyway. <laughs> well, that was Quarantine Spook Show. Uh, I want to thank uh, By Brigade and By Bar for the event here. Uh, thank uh, the other residents of Peacock House, Zealous Cadence, and Ozzy, the goat as well. And Dio, even though he was kind of snoozing tonight. And of course, uh, to thank everyone out who came in tonight, uh, watched the show, and I hope you all had a good time and are still having a good time. Uh, you can find out more about Quarantine Spook Show on, uh, you know, wherever you find podcasts. I do live streams every Tuesday and all that. Uh, anyway, I'm Kyle Grezzi, and good night.